Hey, it's me again. I wanted to let you know we are in the fourth week of our series called Fresh Faith. It's the, the last week of the series. And we're studying the book of Malachi as we try to gain a greater understanding of, of how to love God as He loves us, how to, how to respond to Him in the way that He has treated and continues to treat us with love and mercy and grace and faithfulness. Uh, even as we falter, as we fall short. In our first week, we talked about love and trust, that God is, is a God of eternal faithfulness. And sometimes in our moments, we walk through the story of Corey Ten Boom, and in our, in our moments of difficulty, our times of challenge, um, it can be difficult to see that because it doesn't feel like he is immediately there when the reality is God is watching the long term. He is concerned less about our moment and more about our eternity. And that is, that is the trust that we place in him by coming to Jesus Christ. The second week, we talked about fathers and kings, and, and God equated himself. He said in chapter 1, verse 6 of Malachi, he says, If I'm your father, where is my honor? Where is this this commitment to me. And the people of Malachi had begun to view worship, worship itself, as less of an honor and an opportunity and more of a chore. They had forgotten who their God is and and what he was doing for them. And and their faith was lukewarm. They were offering, and, and the challenge for us too is they were offering their leftovers rather than offering their best, their best talents, their best Sheep, in their case, and in our case, our best energies, our best efforts, our best abilities uh, to the kingdom of God and doing the work that he has laid out for us. After all, he gave his best in sacrificing his son for us. Why wouldn't we do the same? And then last week, we we talked about the differences between a contract and a covenant. Uh, We tend to view most of our relationships in this world as contractual, right, where where we have kind of an either written or unwritten agreement about how we're going to treat someone else if they treat us a certain way. And if, if one party violates that contract, the other party feels justified in breaking their end of the contract as well. And that may be fine for a contractual relationship, but our relationship with God is covenantal. And what does that mean? That means that even though we continue to drop the ball, because we do, God is chosen because he is in a covenant with us as his people not to declare that agreement null and void. He has chosen, in fact, to reinvest, recommit, and reacquaint himself with us on many, many occasions throughout the entirety of human history and does the same powerfully with us and through us in Jesus Christ. This week... Malachi continues his message, and, and, and he talks about somebody that is near and dear to our hearts, and I've referred to him already a few times. He talks about Jesus Christ. He talks about the Messiah, the coming of a, a messenger that will lead the way. We know that to be John the Baptist, and, and, and Jesus Christ himself, who will come to, to clarify God's law for his people, to, to lead them to where they need to go next and to transform them into the likeness of himself. That is, that is his goal, and that's the Savior we know, right? If we've chosen to follow him, that is the Jesus Christ we know, the one that changes lives and changes hearts and transforms who we are. It's the one we preach to the world, the gospel that we preach to the world. That is who 
he is to us and to all of mankind. And yet, as we're going to see, the picture that Malachi draws of Jesus Christ, of the Messiah, of the Lord and the Savior, is different than the one that we generally attribute. Because it's a bit like this. I think the people of Malachi, and we'll see in this text, he kind of goes there. The people that God was speaking to loved the idea of having God lead them. But they weren't always in love with the realities of having God lead them. It was a very different set of expectations. It's kind of like when you have kids, right? The, the idea of a kid, of having children, is, is this wonderful, beautiful, perfect little family, right? Where you have the white picket fence and everyone loves each other all the time and it's only kind words and your kids grow up and they're perfect and they're amazing. And then there's the reality of it, right? The reality of kids is that they are not perfect. They, they turn out to be uh, just tinier versions of us. <laughs> tinier versions of us, also broken, also lost, also selfish, And though it is worth every moment we put into it, it's not all roses, right? It's not always easy. And it doesn't often fit the ideal of maybe what we thought before we had kids. The fact is the coming of the Messiah, knowing Jesus Christ, Him showing up in the world, disrupted all of God's people, disrupted the way they saw the world, disrupted the way they were living their lives. And the truth is, He continues, for those of us who come to Him, to disrupt our lives too. Not because He wants to be difficult, but because He loves us too much to let us be who we were before. And because he is in a covenant with us, he desires for us to be his people. So let's, let's jump into the book of Malachi and kind of see how he describes the coming of this messenger and ultimately the coming of the Messiah. We'll start in Malachi chapter 3. Um, we're going to do verses 1 through 5 today and go through it in bits and pieces. I'm reading the Christian Standard Bible. It says in verse 1, See, I am going to send my messenger, right, John the Baptist, And he will clear the way before me. And then the Lord will seek, the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant that you delight in. See, he is is coming, said the Lord. This this idea of the the covenant that they delighted in, the the, the concept of delighting in something is, is is to enjoy it, right? Enjoy it, embrace it, have your eyes light up and your heart be lifted when you see it or experience it. It's, it's just this overwhelming feel of joy. It brings you pure joy. But it's, and it's, my wife has on her car, she has the, the, the name Hephzibah on her license plates. And that's from Isaiah chapter 61. It's super important to Heather. And essentially, Hephzibah is translated as God, God delights in her because she believes with all of her heart, soul, mind, and strength that God is delighted by her and her presence, not because she's perfect, but because he has created her and because he pursues, she pursues him. And yet... I think when Malachi is using this term delight, delighting in in this covenant, he's using it sarcastically. Because as we've followed the story of the people of God here, especially in Malachi, they have certainly not delighted in the covenant they have with him, right? They have 
learned to, to see worship as a chore. They have chased after other gods. They have done everything in their power but pursue God. They don't see it as a delight. And so he's using this term sarcastically. It's, it's as though he's, he's saying, Your messenger, my messenger is coming, and I am coming, and, and you pine for that. You say you want that. You say you want the covenant to be fulfilled, for my people to come back to me, and for all to be right in the world, for those that call me their Lord and their God. You want that. You're asking for it. But do you really know what you're asking for? Again, they kind of like the idea of letting God lead or having God's world come to become a reality to them rather than the reality of it. When I was a kid, my mom used to make angel food cake. And every time she made angel food cake, she would turn it upside down so it would stay fluffy, right? And she would take the the pan and put it on a bottle of Perrier, right? We We tended to have about two or three bottles of Perrier that were probably in my mother's cupboard most of my childhood, the same two bottles. They never traded out because, because mom didn't drink it. It was just the perfect size to fit on top of, of uh, or for the, the cake pan to fit on top of. And I remember telling my mom once, I was like, I really want to try that. And she'd go, no, no, you really don't want to try that. And me going, yeah, yeah, I do. I really want that. I don't know why I wanted it, but I wanted it because I thought it would be super awesome. And can I just tell you, mom was right. It was horrible. It was the most disgusting thing I may have ever drank in my entire life. The kingdom of God, the idea of wanting to be transformed, of wanting to come to know the Lord, of wanting Him to disrupt our lives and make us into His image, that idea is wonderful. We, we see it over there and we go, that is super cool. I would love to, I want to try that. I want that in my life. But then when it's not exactly what we expected it to be, just like I didn't expect that Perrier to be what it was, we tend to get frustrated. But the the reality is those those things that we, we hope for, right, are never as easy as we necessarily would want them to be. As I said, kids, you know, they're challenging, but... They're worth every bit of energy and effort and love that we pour into them. They may frustrate our hearts at times, as I know I have frustrated my parents, but they're worth every bit of it. If we're striving to grow in our education, we're trying to earn that PhD, the idea of, of being a PhD or being a medical doctor or being any of those things is incredible, but they're not going to come without effort. They're not going to come without dedication. They're not going to come without commitment. They're not going to come without sacrifice. It's part of what it means to accomplish things. Marriage is the same way. The thing that we referred to or Malachi referred to just this last week in this, this idea of covenant, marriage A wonderful marriage doesn't come by accident. And we may have an ideal of what we think it is, but if we become flustered because that reality doesn't meet up with it, we essentially have a choice. We have a choice to say, it wasn't what I thought and I'm out. Or maybe it's more than what I thought and I need to dive in. Because the truth is, serving an infinite God trying to understand an infinite God, to be transformed into the likeness of Christ, 
isn't going to be easy. It's work. It's hard. It doesn't earn us a greater status with God. He has already provided that for us in Jesus Christ. He has justified himself, made us justified before him, not because we're incredible, but because he, he loves us. But to be this, go through this process called being sanctified, to grow in our Christ-likeness, to move toward him. There's a profound difference. And a, and a question that Malachi is asking the people of God to consider and that we should consider as well. Is it, is, it, is it enough to just think about or idealize or pine to be like Christ? Or do we have to actually work at it? Is the reality of it something more challenging than we expected it to be? But it's worth it in the end. Just like all of these other things, kids, education, Marriage, even sports, all the things we sacrifice for, we do it because we believe they are worth it. Is that not the same in our faith, in our relationship with God? Listen to how he goes on and describes it. Let's pick this up in verse 2. He says, but you can endure, can you? But who? But uh, Let's get that right. But who can endure the day of his coming? Now, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking to myself, Jesus is coming, right? I'm looking at it as a glorious day, but he is saying to the people of Malachi, when, when I show up, when my messenger comes and I come, who can endure this? That doesn't sound all kinds of roses and fireworks, right? That sounds like hard stuff. He says, but who can endure the day of his coming and who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and a, a launderer's bleach. He will be like a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. You know, I, I love a good fire. Uh, you know, Josh, I think, gets that honestly for me. That's my son. He, he loves to build fires in a fire pit in the backyard. Me too. I enjoy doing that. And I enjoy hanging out with my family and I enjoy cooking s'mores. I really do. I dig them. Uh, but a s'more, if you think about it, you know, a s'more, the, the ingredients of a s'more have to go through an awful lot to become that big package of ooey-gooey goodness, right? A marshmallow has to be heated and singed, and some even like it burned, right? But it has to, it has to change the way it's composed, heated all the way through, so it goes from being hard to malleable to squishy. And then it comes in contact with chocolate and melts that, and then it's all squished between two graham crackers. <laughs> That's wonderful stuff, but it, it, it required something. It required heat to be applied. It required it to endure some things. It was left marked up and different and forever changed in order to become what we wanted it to be. As God refines us, he uses this in here, this refiner's fire. I don't think we should be surprised. The people of God shouldn't be surprised that they have to go through something to get to that place. The idea of a refining fire is something God uses repeatedly throughout the scriptures. The process is, 
is interesting. It starts with, with first with brokenness, this idea that, as, as Jeremiah 23, 29 says, it says, my word like fire declares the Lord and like a hammer that breaks a rock into pieces. In, in order to, to first get the metal or the, the ore you need to refine, to turn into that, that pure silver, or that pure gold, because that's what refining is, that process of purification, to get to that, you have to first break it out of everything else around it that's holding it down or holding it back or keeping it from being what it's supposed to be. You have to actually break it apart and break it out of its present state to help it become what it's intended to be. And then, then it enters the crucible. That's that big hot oven. Proverbs says it this way. It says, the crucible for silver and the furnace for God, but the Lord for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. That's the idea that, that there is, is a refining time and, 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 and maybe repeatedly throughout our lives. There's this time where we have to be exposed to the test, the test of our heart, the test of our faith. It may be a physical test. Paul asked for relief. He asked to be relieved of this thorn in his side. And, and yet God said, Paul, no, my, my grace is enough. There's this, this notion that, that not only should we expect difficult times, that maybe we should embrace them. Maybe we should embrace the, 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 the heat that's being applied to our lives. Maybe we should embrace the change that's being called for in us that doesn't always feel peachy keen and wonderful as God challenges us to be his disciples, to change as he wants us to change. That kind of change doesn't come without pain. And honestly, we need to learn to embrace it a little better than we currently do. Part of that refining means trusting that whatever direction God wants us to go, that heat, that crucible that we're in, is purposeful in its nature and valuable to our souls. Because what that crucible does is it separates the dross, the garbage that, that needs to go away. Proverbs 25 calls it this, remove the dross from the silver, and the silver smith can produce a vessel. It first has to be removed before something wonderful can be made from it. And we bring in so much dross into our lives, into our relationship with God. It may be the result of, of how we grew up in the world, our experiences in the world, or the, the, the places we lived, or the people we came in contact with. It may be the result of something that's happened to us, a tragedy, or or a difficulty or a health problem or, or being abused or abusing. It, all of those things form who we are. They form how we got here. But so many of those things are dross. They're just the junk that needs to get out of our way, that needs to be in some cases, burned off, removed as we go through the trials. It's no wonder that, God, that Jesus himself said, anyone, Luke 9, 23, said, anyone who wants to follow me must pick up his cross daily and carry it. It's the idea of setting aside, recognizing that who we are right now, right this minute, is ultimately not who we're called to be and not who God desires us to be. Regardless of where we are in our journey, 
right? Regardless of where we are, there is always an opportunity to move toward Christ-likeness, to become something more, and to move toward our understanding of God, to move toward what it means to live in His presence, to submit to His leadership, and to allow Him to transform us into that ooey-gooey goodness that is a s'more. As God does this, he can go through this this process of refining. If we're going back to the the silver and gold refining that Malachi refers to, this process can occur up to seven times. He says in in Psalm 12, verse 6, he says, And the words of the Lord are flawless, like like silver in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. It can happen over and over again. It's heated up, and each time the, the refiner Right? The, person, the silversmith in this case, in this analogy, is, looks in and, and, and looks to see a pure vat of silver in the crucible. And when he does, he begins to see a reflection of himself more clearly with each step. If it's a, a muddied reflection, then he subjects it to heat again. The goal is to find this perfect reflection God would, it's called the Imago Dei, the very, that, that very image of God. That is the perfect reflection that God is looking for as he continues to challenge us. You know, we have a number of challenges going on in our world right now. And when it causes massive emotions or, or angst or or worry, or anger, or fear, or any of those things to swell up, we have to first ask ourselves, I think, is this an opportunity for me to learn? To learn of who my God is, to lean into Him more, and to ask, what would He have me do here? Because I've I've found that, that when I'm able to do that, and I'm not always able to do that, but when when I'm able to set aside whatever is making me mad, right, and recognize that that anger doesn't come from a holy place, it is not of God, because maybe I'm angry because things aren't going my way, when the fact is they're supposed to go God's way. Maybe I'm scared and so I lash out or, or try to protect something. Maybe I'm scared of of COVID. Maybe I'm scared of somebody breaking into my house. Maybe I'm scared of war. Maybe I'm scared of the economy collapsing. Maybe I'm scared. Those fears are not from God. Those fears are from Satan himself and are indicators of a broken world and our brokenness in it. But if I can see the reflection of God. I'm reminded that our God isn't afraid of anything. (laughs) That our God is above all things. And that our God, again, His plan for us is eternal. It's not just in the moment. When I can do that, I can more readily look at things that are going on around around me and to me and, and say, you know, is there a greater truth I can learn? Can I set aside my fears 
and lean into his peace. And when I can do it, I wouldn't trade those moments for anything. So, but this, this refining, again, it, it transforms. Watch this. Let's keep going. It says in the second, beginning in the second half of verse 4, it says, They will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will please the Lord as in the days of old and as in years gone by. I will come to you in judgment, and I will be ready to witness against sorcerers and adulterers and against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker, the widow, and the fatherless, and against those who deny justice to the resident alien. They do not fear me, says the Lord of armies, because I, the Lord, have not changed. You, descendants of Jacob, have not been destroyed." Bananas. Let's talk about bananas. Um, my kids tend to like to eat bananas that are slightly green still. Um, but bananas are one of the most popular foods in our country. They, they outsell at Walmart, they outsell Coke and Pepsi every year. In fact, the average American eats about 25 pounds of bananas in a given year. The funny thing is, bananas, you know, you can tell when they're ripe because they turn yellow, right? They change colors and they turn yellow. But that, that exterior change is driven by an interior process. As the, 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 the flesh of the banana begins to, to ripen in order to, to feed the seeds are, that are within, because that's really what it is. It's, it's media. It's, it's food for the seed of the banana to replant itself and do something with it, right? As it begins to change, the starches that make an unripe banana, a green banana, really hard, turn into sugars and it begins to soften. And, and the, the peel begins to thin out. And the, the gas, it's ethylene gas, it breaks down the chlorophyll. And as it breaks down the chlorophyll that makes the banana green, the peel begins to reveal its true color, the color it would be without in this case, that contaminant, it begins to turn yellow. Ancient Egyptians understood this, not just about bananas, but about other fruits. They would cut into figs knowing that if they could cut into the figs and begin to release this gas, this ethylene gas that begins to, to be produced as a fruit ripens, that it actually would cause the other figs and the other items around it to also ripen. Scientists have, have, have duplicated that in present times. If you've ever heard the, the theory, you know, one bad apple ruins the whole bunch, well, one good apple can actually change the whole bunch too. In fact, if, you, if scientists have discovered if you take a ripe apple and you put it amongst a bunch of other unripe apples, Actually, that ripe apple causes the other ones around it to ripen. You know, as, as God is, is reaching into our world, He's changing us, and, and, and He's beginning to, to process who we are. The truth is, we change on the outside only when we change on the inside first. And the other truth is that as we change, we can actually begin to affect change on others. Make no mistake here, Malachi is not telling 
him or the people of God, that, that, that God doesn't love them. In fact, he says, because God has not changed. You know, Lord, the Lord says, because I have not changed. You, my people of Jacob, have not been destroyed. I am still here. Despite the fact that you have violated our covenant a thousand times, I am still here and I still love you. And I love you so much that I just can't leave you the way you are. I need you to ripen. I need you to be refined. I need you to grow. I need you to become who you're intended to be so that you can be that as my people, as my witness to the rest of the world. But the thing is, that doesn't come without significant change, significant commitment. The phrase he uses here in Malachi, he's coming to judgment. You know, that's, that's frightening. It's scary. And in, in some ways, it kind of should be. It really kind of should be. But, but to come to judgment comes to, to, to bring forth truth. What is real and what is not? What is valuable and what is not valuable? What is silver and gold and what is dross that needs to be pulled off? When, when he says the Messiah is coming in judgment, yeah, he's coming to identify what's busted and broken about all of the world and about each of us. You know, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have access to his Holy Spirit. We have access to the messenger. We have access to God's presence himself. And when he comes in judgment to us, it isn't to tear us down or destroy us or make us begin to think we're not worth anything because at the end of the day, when others in the world are trying to tear you down, that's what they're telling you, right? They're trying to tell you that, you know, it starts in middle school, <laughs> with middle school boys beating up people and telling them, ah, you're garbage, I don't like you, you're useless, you're worthless, the world will tell you unless you meet a certain standard of, usually a standard of beauty or athletic prowess or intelligence that you're not worthy of anything. God has nothing to do with that when he's bringing judgment. He's not saying you're not worthy because if he says you are worthy, that's enough. The rest doesn't matter. But what he is saying is that you are worthy of my love. Now, because I love you, I need to tell you the truth. I need to tell you where you're broken. I need to call something what it is. I need to call sin, sin. And that's not always going to be easy. It's going to be challenging to you. The people of God here in Malachi needed to hear that. They needed those who claimed most closely, the priests here, to follow God were doing anything but that. They were liking the idea of letting God lead and not liking actually letting him do it. Because when he does it, he's going to push us. He's going to call something what it is. He's going to call us to what we should be. And the question is not whether or not God is ready, willing, and able because he is. The question is, are we willing to set aside our egos and our fears long enough to trust our holy God. Because isn't that the ultimate challenge? Isn't that the ultimate understanding of what it means to commit to or to submit to an authority, right? Are we going to let God do with each of us, of us and all of us what he wishes? Because at the end of the day, is that not who we're called to be? And when we ripen, when we are refined, when the dross is gone and the chemicals change and our peel turns yellow, 
we can affect everyone else around us. We are his witnesses. But we can only witness if we're showing others him. And that only comes if we get out of our own way. Blessings to you. Have a great week.